Um, but I'm so excited because I've been excited about this message, and I've been excited about preaching um, or teaching or walking through, however you want to see it, um, the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount with you um, for a while. Because I read it not very long ago, and I, I read it, and I read it again because I have read it before. Um, you're like, good, we're glad because you're the pastor and stuff. But anyway, I read it again, and I got just this new glimpse on it for me. And, and it just touched my heart, and I hope that it touches your heart too. So let's just real quick um, overview. We're in the book of Matthew. So the book of Matthew um, is, of course, one of the four gospels, the synoptic gospels. And so these are four tellings of the story of Jesus, foretellings of the story of Jesus. Now, we know that there is more to the story of Jesus than what is recorded in the Bible. We know this because in the Bible, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus did so much, and there was so much that he did, and so much that he said, that if everything was recorded, it would fill all of the books in the world. In other words, that's kind of that hyperbolic, um, you know, uh, time period uh, of writing where they're just basically trying to say, he did a lot more than this, just this is the highlights, make sure that you pay attention to the stuff we wrote down. And so the book of Matthew is an interesting book because it's really written so that the person who's reading it will come away with the conclusion based on Old Testament prophecies, right, based on Old Testament writings, based on Old Testament archetypes, that Jesus is Messiah, that he's not just a Messiah, because there had been other Messiahs in Jewish history, but that he is the Messiah, the one that is the culmination of all of these prophecies. And so the author is writing this with that in mind. And as he's crafting the story, just as if you were telling a story, like if you were telling a story about your daughter or about your boss or about whatever, and you wanted to make a point you would pick out the parts of the story that made that point best, right? And he's doing the exact same thing here. And so he's showing Jesus as Messiah by showing him as three things. First, Jesus as Moses, the lawgiver. See, Moses was the most important person really in Jewish history when it came to being authoritative. He was the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. But he was also the one who went up on the mountain and brought down the law. He brought down God's words, the Ten Commandments, all of the other things that are written in the books of the law. He is an incredibly important figure. And so Matthew is making sure that we know that Jesus is, like Moses, an authoritative teacher. He's also making sure that we know that, like David, he is a king, that he is in the line of David, because that was really important. The Messiah had to be in the line of David. And then also that he is Emmanuel, the God who lives with us the God who lives with us. And so we're, we're not focused on the last two here in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, we're focused on this first chunk. And, and for those of you who were last, here last week, this is a little bit of review, but I think it's helpful. I love review. I love going over things more than one time because this brain doesn't always keep all of that information. Anybody else have that issue? All right. And so um, thank you for your honesty or your empathy. Either one is appreciated. And so um, basically what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount is the author is sending, he, he is reminding us, he is showing us a picture of Jesus going up on the mountain because he's already shown us Jesus coming out of Egypt. That's important, right? Because the children of Israel under Moses' guidance did what? Came out of Egypt. And he's shown us Jesus being baptized in the water and out of the water. Why is that important? Because Moses led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. So they came through the water, just like Jesus came through the water. And then he's already shown us Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan. Why is this important? Because the children of Israel had gone in the wilderness for 40 years, right? 
before they were able to enter the promised land. He had 40 days before he was able to enter into his ministry. And now we see this beautiful moment where the author tells us that Jesus goes up on the mountain, but he does it different than Moses. He calls the people to him. See, when Moses went up on the mountain, nobody could touch the mountain. Anybody who touched the mountain died. But Jesus, Jesus said, no, I am Emmanuel. I'm the God who lives with you. I'm not going to just let you send a representative to go get the law from God. Instead, I'm going to let you come to me. Hear me. Hear my words. Hear the law. Hear my teachings directly from my lips. I want you with me on the mountain. So that's where we all are in this passage of scripture. We are all sitting with Jesus on the mountain, hearing him authoritatively teach about what his kingdom is like and what is important to him. And he starts with the Beatitudes. And we talked about those last week. These ways of being blessed that kind of seem a little weird. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Blessed are the, ble- and he goes through all of these different things that really teach us how we're supposed to live. Hungering after God, humble, aware that we're not the biggest thing, aware that we are not the center of the universe, literally or figuratively, that we are not more than what we are, which is loved by God, but also at the same time, confident that if we search after God, that he will be found by us. Do you see holding those two tensions? Because if I realize I'm not the center of the universe and I stay in that correct humility, I, 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 sometimes people will stay there, but then they miss out on, but I am so important to God that if I seek after him, he will meet me, <laughs> right? And so it's this tension of living in the reality of who we are, who God says we are. Do you see? And he says, live this way. And, and he says, be peacemakers. True peacemakers, like people who pursue wholeness in every area of life. You're super popular to be a peacemaker. It's not popular to be a peacemaker. Um. Not a real one. Not, not one who loves everybody. Not, not one who stops, right? Because when we stop gossiping at the water cooler, when we stop engaging in the outrage parties, right? When we stop, when we, when we start bridging, right? When we start building the bridge, when we start connecting, when we start communicating instead of, instead of gossiping behind people's back or judging or whatever it is, when we start really, when we start being a peacemaker, it's not a very popular thing to do. And so he's very kind to us and he tells us, and once again, this is a recap, but I think it's important that we remember, once again, he tells us, hey, just want to kind of let you know that if you live the way that we just described, you know, all those blesseds, you live hungry for me, you live humble, you live pure in heart, if you love, live as a peacemaker, if you live as all of these different things, you're going to be persecuted. Oh, that's good news, Destiny. I'm glad I came to church on Wednesday night. You're going to be persecuted, but, but don't worry, because with that persecution, it's going to come a great reward. With that persecution, it's going to come a great reward. And, you know, we can have all kinds of ideas of why we would be pushed away, why we would endure persecution. But I don't know that right, just just righteous living usually comes to the front of just choosing to continue to forgive, of just choosing to continue to be a peacemaker, of just con- choosing, continue, choosing to be, because it's annoying, right? To people, and so I don't know. I don't know if I want. I don't know if I want that person around me. And then I, I think they make me feel bad. There's all these reasons. So he he goes through this and he explains that, but then he jumps right to what we should be focusing on, and he says it is your difference that makes you able to be the salt of the earth, and the world needs salt. Last week we talked about how salt. Um, disinfects, right? 
and how salt brings out the flavor in things and how salt can neutralize, how salt can do all of these different things, right? And that that's who we are. And we stopped with this idea that salt, actually, last night, I had an incredible gumbo. I just need you to know that. It was truly incredible. I went to the Chi Alpha house um, in Lafayette for like a little reception after church because we were at a convention for our denomination. And it was like a little reception. And there was this intern um, at the Chi Alpha house who made a gumbo that number one was gluten-free. How is that possible? I'm just incredibly confused. But he made a gluten-free gumbo because I thought that all gumbo had flour, whatever. He made a gluten-free gumbo that was so good, it was ridiculous. But I found out this morning why it was so good, because my hands were completely swollen. That gumbo had more salt in it than anything. In, it, was, it was so salty, and it was so good. It was, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, I, I told you this last week, but, but I want to repeat it, that, that home cooks are usually, you know, known for, like, bland food. I mean, I'm sure not you, but whatever, um, because they don't put enough salt in the cooking. Because a professional knows that if you want everybody in the entire Chi Alpha house to think that you are the greatest chef, that has ever walked the earth, you should put a whole lot of salt in your gumbo. And I think that sometimes we can forget that the world needs a lot of saltiness. They don't just need a little sprinkle. They don't just need a dab. They need us to be salt everywhere we go all the time. I'm not talking about being aggressive. I'm talking about being authentically salt. Do you hear me? Isn't that a challenge in our hearts to say that way? But but also, we never see a recipe, once again, that calls for one grain of salt, do we? I mean, I haven't seen one. I don't, I don't know if you have. I haven't. I've never seen a recipe that calls for one grain of salt. Salt's better together. And that's why we, we have to resist not gathering together with other Christians we have to resist the things that we would even fraction us and keep us from identifying with other groups of Christians. We have to, we have to as much as we can, go, oh, you believe Christ alone, grace alone, scripture alone? We're in. We're together. I'm excited. Let's do this thing, right? We can be salt together because the more salt, the more benefit that we can give to the world. So that's where we paused Last week, everybody just turn to somebody and say, that's where we paused last week. Oh, oh, come on, y'all are going to have to talk to your neighbor louder than that. That's where we paused last week. All right, now say, I'm excited about this week. Are you excited about this week? I'm excited about this week. Okay, we're going to start in verse 14. Verse 14. You are, oh. I should tell you what chapter this is. It's chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to a few, to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and moral excellence and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I love this because remember the writers told us that we're going to endure persecution for living this way. And then he says, hey, you're the salt of the earth. But then he also tells us that we're a light, that, that we're the light of the world, that, that we're a city on a hill, that we can't be hidden. And, and I think he is pleading with us and saying, hey, look, I know it's going to be hard to live this way, especially if you're making a turn, especially if your family isn't all in with you, especially if your friends aren't all in with you, especially if you just exist on planet earth. It's going to be hard, right? But don't pull back. Don't, don't try to, like, hide who you are. Don't try to be light here, 
but not light there. Be the same, same light every single place that you go. And what I hear sometimes from people is they say, well, within my job, I'm not able to talk about Jesus specifically. Okay. But be light. Be Jesus. Love people the way that Jesus has loved you. Don't compromise on your integrity. Choose the right path. Choose to be humble. Choose to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Choose to be the person who goes. Do you see what I'm saying? Choose to be that person all of the time. When we are able to say our full statement of faith to somebody, it should not change the way that we treat that person than if we met them and we never were going to have a chance to share with them at all because of whatever restraint. The same person that we are in the gas station should be the same person that we are on Sunday morning. We, we don't put something on to come in here. In fact, I hope, if anything, we take something off, that we are more raw and that we are more vulnerable and we're more willing to say we've got issues when we walk in this place than anywhere else because this is the safe place where I can look at you and you can look at me and I can say, you know what, I'm struggling to be light and you can help me. And you can give me a little bit of your oil, and I can give you a little bit of my oil, and you can kind of tweak me a little bit, and then you can send me out shinier because the world needs the light of the world. He's saying, don't pull back. Keep going. Keep doing it. And this is, this is an interesting part, and we're going to kind of get, get back there. You know, keep showing up. Keep being morally excellent. But don't think that they're going to give you an award for it but know that eventually they'll glorify your Father who's in heaven for it. You may say that sounds really, really strange, but, but it really is true. So many of you probably have sowed seeds into people's lives that you will never see the fruit of. But somewhere, I truly believe this, when we follow Jesus and we choose to be the salt of the earth, and we choose to be the light, and we choose to just love people in each situation, when we choose to be led by him, when we choose to do these things, you see what I'm saying? We choose to just scatter our seed. You know, I'm just going to keep, just get up and do it. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be me. I'm going to go to work and I'm going to be me. I'm going to make sure that I'm on time and I'm excellent. I'm going to make sure that I have integrity. I'm just going to keep being me. I'm just going to keep doing what I can do. There are people who will find Jesus and they will look back and go, man, I remember where this seed came from. But they won't be giving glory to you. They'll be giving glory to God who sent you into their lives who used all the seeds of so many different people to bring them to that point. Does that make sense? I love this. That, that's, that's what I see in that verse. By the way, as you're reading this or you're hearing me read it, there may be other things that come up in your heart. That's the best part about studying the Bible is that it speaks to each of us, right, again and again and again. Love it. All right, let's go to verse 17. Do not think that I came to do away with or undo the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, because that's what they're kind of thinking at this point, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, he's being kind of countercultural. He's talking about all these different things. He has been, um, you know, a, a little bit at it with the religious establishment to this point. And so he is reassuring them and he's saying, don't think I came to do away or undo the law of Moses or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for I assure you and most solemnly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. So whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches them, he'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness, your uprightness, your moral essence is more than that of the scribes and Pharisees who are the most righteous in this society, okay, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's telling us 
something really important. And sometimes we can miss it. People use this to say, well, then that means that all of the law of the Old Testament, like the dietary laws, the you know dressing laws, all of these different laws are incorporated within the New Covenant. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, I did not come, hear me, to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Does a marriage, marriage abolish an engagement? No. You can break an engagement and go get engaged to somebody else. Right? You can break an engagement. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fulfill the law. When he came to fulfill the law, just like a marriage fulfills an engagement, he came to fulfill everything that the law demanded. He became the perfect man. He became the one that did not break even a single law. When he says that, when he says the one who follows everything will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, there is only one who has ever followed everything, and he was talking about himself. His name is Jesus. He's the only one who was perfect, and he lived that perfect, that blameless, that incredible life, and he fulfilled it. And so we're like, oh, we're off the hook. That's good, like that, because I really, really like, you know, my shellfish, you know? Wouldn't have been able to do that under the dietary laws. Really like my bacon, wouldn't be able to do that under the dietary, you know, whatever it is. That is not where Jesus leaves the conversation. Let's be real clear. He says, look, I'm going to fulfill that. Oh, (laughs) but my way, you know those people in your society who are the best people in your society? When we read the Bible, because we're reading it from the kind of knowing what's going on right now and looking back, we look at like the scribes and Pharisees and we're like, oh, those people. That is not how his society saw them. It's really important. The scribes and the Pharisees were their trusted religious leaders. These were the good guys. These were the people who were trying to keep the the way of life in the midst of oppression, who were trying to to keep the Romans and the Greeks from taking any more ground into their culture. These were the truth tellers. Do Do you see what I'm saying? And he's saying, those guys, those guys who are on the front line of your cultural war, your righteousness is gonna be have to be higher than theirs. Okay, Jesus. So you just told me that you're going to fulfill the law, but now you're telling me there's more. Now you're telling me that there's a higher way. And then he starts to talk about it. Isn't that exciting? It's very exciting. All right. So he starts talking about personal relationships. And by the way, we're going to get into some all kinds of stuff in here. And if you start feeling feelings, can you imagine how these people felt? As they're hearing him say this stuff, just imagine. All right. You have heard it was said to the men of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Now, the court is a religious court, okay? Because they are ruled by religious leaders. All right? So get out of your mind, Bossier Parish, criminal and civil court. All right, this is a religious court. It would be more like if you had um, the religious leaders of a denomination, all right, and, and they were all sitting in front of you, and you had a dispute or you had a problem, and you were brought forward in front of them. Do you see what I mean? So they're not just like your civil court this, or, or your secular court. This is a religious thing. This has implications for you as a member of the religious community. Yes, you can lose your freedom, but the worst thing that could happen to a Jewish person in those times was to be that they were censured or kicked out or their standing was lowered in the community. Do you see what I'm saying? Why? Because community was everything. I mean, community is everything to you too. It's just that we have technology that kind of fakes this, right? But I mean, community is everything. But imagine in a world where there's no refrigeration, right? 
where there's no tele, telecommuting or anything like that, where you work, how you eat, all of these things are dependent on you having a good community. Your very life, your family's survival is connected to the community. Do you see how important this court is? This isn't something that you can just shrug off and move to the next parish. This is important, all right? So, let's read it. You've heard it said to the men of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who continues to be angry with his brother or harbors malice against him shall be guilty before the court. And whoever speaks contemptuously and insultingly. By the way, I'm reading in the Amplified version, so sometimes there's a couple words that are extra. To his brother, Raka, which means you empty-headed idiot. It's pretty good insult. I'm just saying. I mean, don't use it. I'm just, just, I was just saying. It would be really awful if you did. It's like, where'd you hear that? I heard it from church. That's not good. All right. Shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, which was the Sanhedrin. That would have been like the big religious court. And whoever says you fool shall be in danger of the fiery hell. So if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and while there you remember that your brother has something, such as a grievance or legitimate complaint against you, leave your offering there at the altar and go. First make peace with your brother, then come back and present your offering. Come to terms quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way to this religious court so that your opponent doesn't hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then you're thrown into prison. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, you won't come out of there until you've paid the last cent. Okay. This is is such an interesting thing. Why were they bringing offerings to the temple? They were bringing offerings to the temple to fulfill the law, yes, but it was more than that. It was to fulfill a debt to God, right? We bring offerings. Why do we bring offerings? Do we bring offerings to pay God back? No. Offerings within the Christian context are out of gratitude, right? So we show up, and maybe we read this passage, and we're like, oh, offering. No, 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 no. We're not just talking about, oh, I'm so grateful. This is so good. We're talking about there's a debt to be paid. There's a debt to be paid. I'm a sinful person. I have to redeem the firstborn of my family. I have to redeem the firstborn of my herd. I have to redeem the first of my crops. I ha- Do you hear? see this? He, they're paying a debt back to God. And so it, they, they go to the temple with this offering to pay a debt to God. And what is God concerned about? God's concerned about not them paying their debt to him, but how they feel and treat their brother. Do you see how crazy this is? It's like, no, no, God, this was just between me and you. Like, this is just, that person has nothing to do with this. And he's saying, no. Not only that, he has everything to do with it. The most important thing you can do is not bring your offering in this moment, but to make it right with your brother. And and Jesus, the Bible is like this brilliant document that you can read in so many different levels because this is all foreshadowings for something that's going to happen later on in the sermon because Jesus was an incredible speaker, right? And he says this, he's right, he says, he said, make sure you agree quickly on the way to the court. Because if you show up, you're going to be convicted. We don't even know what the problem is. What if it was that guy's issue? But later on, Jesus is going to talk to us about forgiveness. Forgiveness and justice are not the same thing. Right? Right? And what are we ordered to do for others who have harmed us? Forgive. What are we ordered to pursue on behalf of others? Justice. Do you see how crazy this is? This is an upside-down world. 
where Jesus is saying some crazy things. The most important thing that you could do would be to bring your offering on time. And he's saying, not in a world where you can text the guy and get it settled, you know, while your offering's on hold in the line. But in a world where it might take a while, it's not as important for you to get that on time as it is for you to deal with this issue. And we're going to see why in just a moment. I, are you excited? Because I am excited. It's, so, it's, it's amazing what, what, what God's doing. The other thing I love about this, and, and I just want to say this before we, we keep going, is he's really calling for a true submission of our rights to be insulting or get revenge or call somebody out and asking us to submit to his way of doing business first. That's hard. Can you see how somebody who lived that way might endure a little bit of persecution in their life? Anyway, all right, let's go to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. For I say to you that everyone who so much as looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble and leads you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That is, remove yourself from the source of temptation, which the Amplified Version says. But um, throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble and leads you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now look, people make a really big deal about the cutting off of your hand and the plucking out of your eye, but the context is really fabulous. Because in this culture, there were people, they, they were literally called um, uh, bleeding head Pharisees. I believe that's, that's the correct name. And they would run into a wall rather than look at a woman. Okay? Because the, the, the thought that, I mean, look, just hear me, all right? But this is, this is like, Bible stuff. This is Bible history stuff. The very thought that you could look at a woman and not look at her lustfully, do you see how messed up that is? Right? It's just crazy. It's like, what, what are we even talking about? What Jesus does is he turns all of this on its head, and he makes it the responsibility of the viewer to control their thoughts. Why is this important? Because it gives us the power in our culture, in any culture, in any situation over our response. That we have a choice, that we have a chance to choose our response. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how it's even more than adultery? How it's even more than lust? How it's even more than this? Yes, Jesus is raising the standard, no doubt. He's saying, hey, just because you didn't do it, that's not enough for me. I want you to have a clean mind. I want you to have a clean heart. I want you to have a clean attitude. But he's also making it the responsibility of the person who's seeing, not just the responsibility of the person who's seen. And so many times we can mess things up because we're trying to purify everything around us. Oh, I've just, you know, you're the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. Instead of letting God deal with the dirty heart inside of us, right, and change the way that we think about people, about society, about the world. Does this make sense? You may say, well, I've heard it preached different. That's the best part is that the Bible can be read 15 billion times and you will get something new out of it every time. But that's what jumped out at me was, man, Jesus is so kind because he's never going to let your success at leading the abundant life be dependent on what culture you're in or what environment you're in or who you're nearby. All right, let's keep going. It's also been said, whoever divorces his wife is to give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except on grounds of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who's been divorced commits adultery. Now, let's, let's talk for a second about how extreme this is in this culture. Men were allowed to divorce their wives for things as little as burning dinner. Thank God that's not the rule now. Because we would not have made it through our first year. You guys, I have this thing I say right before I cook and or serve dinner at my house. And I'm like, hey, look, everybody eat. If it's not good, we'll order pizza. Now, it has been many years since we've had to order pizza. But I want you to know the Domino's guy knew our name, Philip and I's first marriage, the first year of marriage. So, so this is this culture. And, and men are able to just divorce their wives by giving them a certificate of divorce. Here you go. Well, what does that mean in a society where women can't own property? What does it mean to a woman that doesn't have a dowry anymore? What what does it mean to her? What does it mean to a divorced woman who's offered another relationship, but it's really just domestic servitude because... There's no relationship. It's just you're going to be the third or fourth. And we're going to get rid of you whenever we want to. Some people say that that's what had happened to the woman at the well. Some people say that it's possible that it was because of infertility. And that she had married over and over again. Because that was her only shot. Having a place to live having enough to eat, having enough. Can you see how abusive that system could be? Can you see how horrible it could be? And can you see Jesus saying, stop it? Stop it now. Stop treating people who you think you have a right to abuse the way that you are. Stop it. This sermon is so much more radical than even just the surface. It's so much more radical than that because it's getting at the heart of the matter. Now, you may say, Destiny, are you ignoring how awkward this, like, what it really says is? No, I'm not. It absolutely has implications right now. You know what? I'm guessing that a lot of you have heard that side of the story before. But have we really thought about what Jesus was trying to do to us? All of us, right? All of us. Because I believe that everything in the Bible should affect all of our hearts, no matter what season of life we're in. And this should scream at me that just because I have a right to do something doesn't mean that it's right. Just because I've been given the liberty doesn't just mean that I should take it because God cares about the way that we treat each other. There's kind of a theme here, isn't there? All right, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, do not make an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by earth or the footstool or his feet or by Jerusalem or because it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you're not able to make a single hair white or black. But let your statement be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. Okay. As a kid, I, I can remember us studying this, and they were like, that's why you can't say I swear. Don't you say I swear. You may not say I swear. You should only say. And, you're, you know, you're probably right because it also is just a really awkward phrase, but um, that, that's really not what this is about. See, people used oaths to distinguish, here, normal speech In truth. Oh. You know what Jesus is saying? The same level of truth, when you give that highest oath, you should find it in your normal speech. Everything you should say should be accurate. 
should be true, should be faithful, should be integrous. Every single thing. Nobody should ever need an oath from you. Because you said it, they should be able to, as they used to say, take it to the bank, right? That our truth in our words would be so true, that it would be so true. Every word we say would have that level of truth. You know, the only way for us to do that is maybe to slow down talking. If you really want to live with that kind of accuracy, you're either going to have to, like, repeat and go back a lot, or you're going to have to slow down. Because it takes a lot to be that level of truthful with yourself, much less other people. But how many people do you know in the business world, those of you who are in the business community, who say, I'll never do business with Christians? One of the worst moments of, honestly, honestly, um, You have those moments where you're sitting there and you're laughing, but you're crying so hard on the inside. And I was talking to an ad agency because I was running a um, political campaign. And he said, well, you're going to have to pay up front. And I was like, that was a good idea on your part. (laughs) Because political campaigns, if you lose, there is no more money. And if you win, there's also no more money. And so, like, you, you should definitely make sure that they pay up front. So I kind of expected that. I was like, that's, you know, I, I totally expected that. You know, this is what we need, and um, we need this billboard. We need this. We need that. And he was like, okay, great. Here's the bill, and once you give us the check, then we'll start work. We, we have to pay in full because, you know, you're a political campaign. He said, that's just my rule for political campaigns and churches. And I laughed because he's a vendor, right, you know? And I'm just like, <laughs> And on the inside, I could have fallen to the floor and died. Because I thought to myself, that shouldn't be. That just shouldn't be. You can say, well, yeah, those churches. But what about us as individuals? Are are we the kind of people who our word is that level of true? When we hear somebody asking us that question, does it make us mad? Do you hear what I'm saying? This is an evaluation. This isn't just for you. This is for me, too. You know, I've had clients who we get to this point, and I'm like, oh, you've been lying. And I'm always really shocked. But you've been, you're lying to, you're lying to your client. Like, you're my client, my legal client, but you're lying. You're lying. You're not telling them the truth. How did we get to the place where as Christians that would ever be okay? Well, we got there because that's just our nature. We got there because that, that's, that's, that's humanity, okay? That's why there's oaths. That's why you have to get things notarized and authorized and appendicized and all the different things, right? It's because our speech, our common speech isn't accurate. But Jesus is calling us to something higher. He's calling us to something higher, something more beautiful, something something that's harder, but also something that's so much greater. It's really beautiful. The Sermon on the Mount. Verse 38 says this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Can you imagine what the crowd's doing at this point every time he says, but I say to you, if it were me, I'd be cringing. I'd be going, oh, he's going to say something different, right? But I say to you, don't resist an evil person who insults you or violates your rights. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other toward him also. If anyone wants to sue and take your shirt... Let him have your coat also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Okay, at this point, if I'm in the audience, I'm like, he's gone off the rails. He's lost his mind. I mean, we're up on this mountain. It was real good. Like, I really enjoyed the fish fry. 
That was good. Do you remember when he gave us fish? I remember when he gave us fish. Do you remember when he gave us the other stuff? I remember. It was really great. He, he healed that person. It was a great moment. You remember when the dove came down and said, you know, the father and the whole, when he baptized? Oh, that was cool. But this, he's lost it. Because this sounds crazy. Can we, can, come on, can we like drop the Christian face for just a second? This sounds crazy. Right? So, so you want me to do exactly what, Jesus? You want me to let anybody? You, but this is what I think is so beautiful. There's so many different layers here. One, he is talking to an oppressed people in oppressed country, right? Pe- people who are, are taking from them. People who, the, the Romans and, and the Greeks were both taking advantage of his people, the Jewish people. They would force them to to walk a mile with them. They had to. They had to carry their kit for an entire mile, no matter what they were doing. The Roman soldier had that right. Say, hey, you have to stop what you're doing and carry my kit, carry my, Philip says that's not a word anybody in the South uses, carry my backpack, my luggage. Anybody have anything else they want to say? What's another word for the army stuff? What do you all call it? Gear, come on. Can we just give him a hand for helping me out? I so appreciate you. Okay, so carry my gear. That was very helpful. Gear for a mile, all right? Carry it for a whole mile. And then also, just think about this for, for, for another. So slapping somebody also was an insult. It wasn't just an assault. Remember, this is a much more physically tactile time, okay? Uh, people are coming in contact with each other a lot more. So it, it, it's not just an insult. It, it's not just a, an assault, but it's also an insult, right? There's all these things going on. And I believe with all of my heart that part of what Jesus was doing is he was giving power back to make a choice, right? So he's saying, hey, next time they ask you to go one mile, wait for it, wait for it, go two. So take it instead of becoming an obligation where somebody is hurting me, where I have become the victim, where I am hurt. Instead, you have the right to give away and to turn it into a blessing. And more than that, to become the powerful person in the story. Mahatma Gandhi, crazily enough, understood this principle probably better than anybody had ever understood it. Which is sad because he was very, very much a Hindu. And he used it to bring... The British Empire, among other things, but he used to bring the British Empire to its knees. Why? Through peaceful, civil disobedience. What does it look like when I no longer fight back? What does it look like when I take control of my story? Where you can hurt me, and you can kill me, and you can do whatever you want to do to me, but I refuse to be anything else other than true to me. What kind of bravery does that require? Well, we don't have to look very far because we live in Louisiana where brave people who were inspired by Gandhi, in the 60s, turned the world upside down through peaceful demonstrations. Where did Gandhi get this? He actually got it from this passage. He said it, not me. I'm not just making that up. You're like, are you sure? I don't think he did. No, he really did. He literally credited this passage for changing the way that he thought about changing the world. Because that's how radical Jesus is. That's how radical Jesus' thoughts are. In fact, he said this. He said that Jesus' way might have convinced him if it hadn't been for Jesus' followers. Isn't that interesting? 
All right, we'll just skip over that and keep going. Verse 43. You know what I really hope more than anything? I hope that this stirs up conversations on your way back home. And I hope you Google the mess out of it and that you find at least one thing that I got a little bit wrong because you're going to find like a bunch of other things out about these passages and that's what Bible study is all about. Yay. Okay. That's my internal dialogue every time I preach. All right. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on those who are evil and on those who are good and makes the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors. By the way, those are the actual bad guys in the story. Okay. For even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles do that. You, therefore, will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I do like this part of the Amplified. It says, you, therefore, will be perfect, growing into spiritual maturity, both in mind and character, actively integrating godly values into your daily life. Isn't that beautiful? You want me to read that one more time? Growing into spiritual maturity, both in mind and character, Actively integrating godly values into your daily life as your heavenly father is perfect. You know, as a kid, I can remember struggling in different areas of my life and having people, um, I don't think they did it maliciously, but just say to me, well, Bible says, be perfect as God is perfect. And I can remember when I really read the context of the scripture and I realized that the perfection he's talking about is loving those in your life who've treated you the worst. Doing good to everyone, regardless. Do you understand what that that really means there? Where it says, you're going to be the children of your father in heaven because the sun rises on those who are evil and are those who are good. And the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Think about that for a moment. He's God. He's God. And yet the sun rises on ISIS. And the rain falls on villages and in towns that persecute Christians not with bad looks, but with clubs and machetes. Sometimes we have to understand the extremity of God's goodness and his love for us to understand how far away we are from ever getting close to his standard. But he says, hey, if you want to be perfect the way your father is perfect, if you really want to be my child, then you're going to have to stop acting like loving your own kids is the epitome of Christian fellowship. Because really good pagans even do that. Tax collectors are there for their friends, right? People who, people who are, are not anywhere close to knowing God take care of their own community. Being perfect is doing good to the worst people in your life. Sometimes we are okay with doing good to the worst people in someone else's life. And that's good. We should be kind to everyone, right? We should love everybody as God loves us. Okay, so I'm not telling you that you can only love your enemy. But what about doing good to the person in our life? You may say, say, I don't really have any major enemies, and I get that. Because can I be really honest? I don't really have any enemies either. I don't have any. I don't, 
I sometimes feel like I don't do enough, you know, that, that to have enemies. I, don't, I just don't have, I don't have a whole lot of just, I don't have a lot of people who to my face, and I kind of, you know, internet trolls, I'm not going to go after them, but like I can't get to them to really love on them. So, you know, that's, I mean, they, do you know, that's kind of like throwing a missile from really far away. Like I can yell, bless you, but I mean, I can't do very much right here. But I'm talking about enemies right here. You know what I'm talking about? Like that person in, some of you may have real enemies. You may have people in your office who hate you. You may have people in your family who hate you. You may have, do you see what I'm saying? You may have some real enemies. But some of you may just have people that that just irritate you. That maybe haven't just been good. You know, they haven't been good to you. You know, maybe they were bad my big thing is this, I can overlook the offenses you give to me, but if you hurt one of my people, mama bear's coming. Do you hear me? I'm, I, I'm, I will start my truck for any one of you. I'm just telling you. And so somebody will tell me about this person who hurt them. They go home having forgiven and being healed, and I am trying to decide if I'm writing a letter to the editor. You know what I mean? I'm trying to decide if, if I'm going to, I'm trying to decide what I'm going, do you see what I'm saying? And I'm just going to confess, today we're on our way back from a wonderful three services. It's just been absolutely incredible. You know, Eddie was there. He had a great time. We worshiped, didn't we, Eddie? It was awesome. He also drove in this afternoon. We worshiped. We had an absolutely incredible time together. And so we're driving in, and I feel the Holy Spirit convicting my heart. And I turned to Philip, and I said, "Um, you know, I don't really like so-and-so. I think I might, I think I might, (laughs) I think I might need to repent about that. I really don't, I really don't like them. It's not that, like, I want them to fall off a cliff, you know? I don't, like, actively wish bad things on them. But I, I just, I just don't, I just don't like them, you know? Do you have to like everybody? I don't know, but I just know, I, I know this. I know that the Holy Spirit was convicting my heart today. And so I started unpacking it, and I went, I'm offended because this person had hurt three of my friends, had hurt and had hurt three of my friends, three people I cared about, three people who were my people. You know what I'm talking about? And I would, I what I realized is that I was kind of like on the balls of my feet when I was around this person, just waiting. Nobody else ever has done this. Like, I'm not gonna go after you, but just move. Just move, just move, because I have it pent up inside. I know what you did to so-and-so. I know what you did, and I already know what I'm going to say, right? I had to repent. I'm sitting in Philip's car. I'm like, man, I'm not being who I was called to be. Because Jesus says, I'm supposed to be perfect. And he doesn't just allow the just and the unjust to exist. He sends rain. He sends the sun. He's not sitting on the balls of his feet waiting for me to mess up. And I don't get to do this same for other people. You know, we can read the Sermon on the Mount. And we can read it for other people. You know what I mean? You can be like, oh, man, the church just doesn't understand this these days, right? Oh, man, you know, I know so many people who don't live up to this. The world doesn't like this. This is countercultural. We can feel really proud. But what about me? Am I letting this pin me? 
Well, I'm better than, talk too loud. Well, I've never, no. I don't know about you. I want to be the salt of the earth. I want to be the light of the world. I want him to crank up the light on the inside of me so that it shines so bright in every environment. Whether I'm buying billboards, working with a client, or talking on a Wednesday night. But the only way to do that is when I study the Bible. Really let it read me. But ask it to convict me first before I use it for anybody else. It's 7.40, so we're going to end, and, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually finish this in a few weeks, I think. This is just chapter 5. But can I just pray for you for a moment? You know, I, I don't know what of this might have touched your heart. Maybe it was the same part as me is where you're going, oh, like I, maybe, maybe I'm not loving the people who don't love me. Maybe I'm not. Maybe you're living in an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth world. Maybe it's the part about just having your normal speech be as reliable as your vows. That's a big one, right? That's a big thought. See that? Maybe it's you have a right to do something, but you know it's not right. You know it's going to hurt somebody and and more than just hurt somebody, but it's not just, it's not right. And just because you have a right doesn't mean that it's just, right? That was a great English sentence. Maybe it was the part about understanding that our offerings are important to God, but our debt to God See, see, this is what it says later on, and I'm going to tell you now because some of you won't be here whenever I say this. Later on, what it talks about is it says that, that we should forgive, and then Christ will forgive us, okay? That's what it says. It says we forgive, and God forgives us. Do you see the way that works? He's saying, hey, you cannot give me anything for your forgiveness, But I expect you, as I'm forgiving you, for you to forgive other people without expecting anything back. If you wanted to sum up the Sermon on the Mount, it would be, don't look to people for anything that you're supposed to look to God for. That's it. That, I mean, honestly, it would be, God is your source. You are the light. Right? God is your source, but you are the light. It would be, God forgives me, I forgive others. It look, do you see the way this looks? It looks like God flowing through me into the world. But so many times we can get into this thing where we're looking to the world for affirmation. We're, and I'm not just talking about the worldly world, okay? I'm talking about the world, like in the, in the like, uh, we're looking to people, Right? We're looking to people for identity. We're looking to people for affirmation. We're looking to people for, for, um, for, for them to make it right for us so that we can be right. We're looking to people to adjust their behavior so that we'll think the right thoughts. We're looking for people to adjust their stuff so that we don't go through our art. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we're looking to people. And God's saying, hey, all that stuff that you need, Every single thing, I will give it all to you. Every single bit of it. But you have to opt out of that system, and you have to opt fully into my system, where you allow me to be your complete source of wholeness and peace and security. And only then can you begin to operate in the world under my system, because you won't need their stuff. Do you, see, do you see the difference? Sermon on the Mount. The new Moses. 
the one who invites us on the mountain. And he's standing there and he's saying, not only are you invited on the mountain, but you're invited on my mission. Because my mission is to make this earth very salty and full of life. And I want to do it through you. I don't know about you, but I want him to do it through me too. And I want to get rid of any of the darkness. I want to get rid of any of the things. I want to let his word just, I don't want, I want to be perfect the way he is perfect. But, but not perfect as in I'm trying to keep a checklist. But perfect in the way that matters the most to him. That matters the most to him. The way, I, the way I treat the people, because people are what matters the most to me. Do you hear me? The way I rely on him for everything, but then freely give what I've 